Chris Webster here, co-founder of the APN. I just wanted to thank you for supporting archaeological education and outreach. Please share this post across your socials so more can learn about our shared past. On to the episode. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. The Dirt Podcast is brought to you with support from the Archaeology Division of the American Anthropological Association. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And we are very excited for this week's episode because we've got a very special guest to keep us company while we socially distance ourselves. So yay for the internet. Hooray! And hooray for our guest, who is Dr. Brianna Pobiner, a paleoanthropologist, researcher, and educator at the Smithsonian's Human Origins Program. So thank you so much for joining us. This is very exciting. Thank you for having me. I'm excited, too. All right. Well, let's jump right in. Um, let's. Can you tell us a bit about your um, education background, your career trajectory? Have you always known that you wanted to be an archaeologist or have even have you always been interested in human evolution? So or paleoanthropologist I, for that for that matter. Yes, correct. So so I will admit something that I am admitting more and more these days is that actually I was not particularly interested in science in grade school and high school. And in fact, when I started undergrad, I thought I was going to be an English major, maybe comparative literature major. I really liked writing poetry. Um, and then I took an anthropology class, which is fun because when my dean suggested it to, as a fourth class to fill out my first semester, I had never heard of anthropology before. Um, but she used to be an anthropology professor, and she said, oh, you might be, you would like it, you should try it. And I loved it. It was, to me, a kind of science where, at least the way it was taught, there were all these mysteries still to solve. There were unanswered questions. And, you know, I felt like I had grown up. I had great science teachers as a kid. But it was very much like you do the lab, you get the right answer. If you don't, you mess something up. And so I really liked the idea of, you know, there's just, it was like a whole unexplored universe of science. Um, so by really by the end of my second semester in college, I had decided that, yeah, this is this is what I want to do. Um, and I never look back. Uh-huh. Well, that's awesome. That's great. I also thought I was going to be an English major when I <laughs> arrived in undergrad. Yeah, I, I showed up for, for the classics and then was like, actually, I like people. Yeah, exactly. So Oh, that, that was the cool thing to me also about anthropology. It's, it's about people, but it's also science, which is I'm a people person. So I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, have you always been interested in like when you got started in anthropology? Was it human evolution that got you interested in it or did you kind of make your way to human evolution later? I think it came pretty quickly. So I my second semester, I took. Um, an introduction to cultural anthropology class. So my first semester, I had taken an introduction to physical anthropology and archaeology. And mm-hmm. I thought, well, you know, but I'm, I'm still a humanities kind of person. I'm really going to like the cultural anthropology. And not so much. Um, I really, that, <laughs> that semester, I also took um, a primate um, evolution and behavior class with an incredibly engaging professor named Janet Monge. And so, like, that, uh-huh. that was it. Yeah. It was just... 
um, and my the paper that I wrote for my first semester class was all about um, human evolution, basically. And so I, I, I got interested in human evolution really quickly once I found anthropology. Cool. Okay. Um, well, speaking of uh, evolution and paleo stuff, um, according to the Smithsonian website, <laughs> your research <laughs> has focused on diet and particularly meat eating in prehistory. So what are your thoughts on the paleo diet? <laughs> I have so many thoughts on the paleo diet. <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, I mean, besides, I have to be, I have to be grateful to the modern paleo diet movement because it makes my science like relevant at dinner parties. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but um, I, you know, a lot of the, the modern paleo diet movement is all about, well, I'm going to exclude this kind of food or this whole category of food from my diet because our ancestors didn't eat it. And maybe mm -hmm. therefore our bodies aren't adapted to it. And so, um, I think there's a lot of misunderstandings or misconceptions or just wrong information in, in that approach. And so I don't think that any early humans or even early modern humans would have looked at something maybe edible and gone, no, I don't think that's part of my diet. I'm not going to eat it. Um, I, I don't think that that, that was part of the they, didn't, they didn't go, I'm not doing carbs this week. Exactly. I think I'll just pass <laughs> on that food that, that might, you know, keep me from starving. Um, and and wrapped up in that is the idea that humans evolve really slowly, that our bodies can't adapt quickly to new diets and new environments. And we just know from lots of research that actually some of the more recent adaptations in modern humans have been about diet, whether it's the evolution of lactose tolerance, the ability to digest and drink milk, whether it has mm -hmm. to do with starch digestion. And the other thing is that we've been eating a lot of these foods for much longer than people think in prehistory. And I think a lot of this is really all wrapped up on our, in our ideas of kind of romanticizing the past and that there may have been, you know, a wonderful idyllic past in which humans lived in harmony with their environment. Um, and I don't think we've been doing that for quite a long time. I think you're probably right. <laughs> Well, um, have you read the book Paleo Fantasy? It is by by Marlene Zuck. Mar Marlene Zuck, yeah. Yes, and that is actually one of I was just telling someone the other day that is absolutely one of my favorite books out there. Kind of um, popular science books about evolution and prehistory, and it has a lot of human evolution in there. I love that book. Yeah, it's it's sitting on my nightstand. I'm halfway through it, but I have like book ADD, so I I pick it up every every few books and, and read another chapter yeah it's really good yeah we'll add that to our book club yeah definitely um and while we're on the subject of human evolution um how about you tell us about the human origins program at the smithsonian so what does it consist of what are your goals both sort of your own within it and the the goals of the program organization uh, yeah and um what do you want our listeners to know about what you do there Sure. So the Human Origins Program is a program within the Department of Anthropology, which is within the Smithsonian's National Museum of Natural History. Um, and so there's a few different programs within anthropology, and it really has to do with kind of the research focus of the people involved in the program. There are only three permanent staff in the Human Origins Program. And I am one of them. Um, there's the wow. director of the program, who's Rick Potts. Um, there's our lab manager, who does sort of everything support-wise, including some research herself. That's Jennifer Clark. Um, and then there's me. And so I have a unique role, not only in the Human Origins Program, but really in the museum. Um, 
where I'm a research scientist and a part of my job description is to do research. Um, but a lot of my job is also focused on education and outreach. And so I help with um, everything from running public programs in the Hall of Human Origins, which I helped put together. That was kind of how I got to the Smithsonian. Um, I, I run our social media accounts for the Human Origins program. I help with volunteer training. I um, help with our website content. So, And I'm also involved in larger education efforts across the Natural History Museum. So even though my job is in the anthropology department, I also function as a member of the Office of Education, which is really fun. It's a little schizophrenic in the sense that like I, you know, I could be doing science research uh, on the same day that I'm also having education meetings. And so I actually really like that diversity of what I do. But I would say as far as the Human Origins Program writ large, really our goals are to engage everybody who's interested in human evolution. Um, and so we do that through our exhibit, which is a permanent hall of human origins at the Natural History Museum, through our website, mm -hmm. through our social media, through our public programs. Um, and so while I continue to do research, I really lead all of the rest of those public facing efforts. Wow. Okay. And yeah. our listeners um, are already familiar with the website um, because when we did our multi-part series on human evolution, um, the Human Origins Program website was one of the best resources for um, very concise and and like really user-friendly and yet very yeah. accessible information about the, these various um, sort of leaves on the on the tree excellent i'm really glad to hear that we we work very hard on our website and we do try to keep it up to date and add content periodically as we can so thank you yeah 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 of course um you mentioned you you just said sort of in passing that's how you got to the smithsonian how okay Hang on. <laughs> Let's put a pin in that, because how did you get to the Smithsonian? Um, so I this is a story that's really fun to tell. Um, I, I was finishing my Ph.D. research in Kenya and Tanzania, which focused on both excavating and studying fossils with butchery marks left by early humans. So looking at those traces of diet in the past. Mm -hmm. and also watching modern carnivores eat things to get a sense of what their chewing patterns look like. And um, because I had a research permit um, through an affiliation with the National Museums of Kenya, that's how I got my Kenyan research permit, one of the requirements of the museum in Nairobi is that you have to make a photocopy of your field notebook so that you can leave your field notes with the museum, which I think is great oh, because cool. it, it's wonderful because you can then, you know, if you're, if you're interested in maybe picking up where someone left off and doing research, you can actually see their field notes. So I was waiting in a photocopy yeah. shop to pick up my field notebook. Hi, listeners. We had a brief instance of audio dropout here, so I will fill in just a quick point in the story, which is that in this copy shop where Brianna was waiting to pick up her field notes, Rick Potts, whom you may recognize as the director of the Human Origins Program at the Smithsonian, was also waiting in the same copy shop to pick up his field notes. Serendipity. Okay, back to the real story. Sorry, Brianna. At the same time, waiting at the photocopy shop to pick up his field notebook. And we had known each other for a while through going to conferences and also doing research in Kenya in general. And he said, so, hey, do you have a postdoc plan when you're done writing your dissertation? I was about to go <laughs> home back to the States to start that. And I said, well, no, I have one person who I've started talking to about maybe a postdoc, but why? 
So he said, well, I'm, I'm going to be looking for somebody to work with me on a couple of things. One of them is to help put together a permanent exhibit on human evolution. And I thought, well, that sounds amazing and and i don't have any experience in that but that sounds amazing um and then the second <laughs> thing was he was looking for someone to help run his excavations at the site of alorga Sile in southern kenya where he had been working for about 20 years at that point and running everything himself but he knew that because by that point the fundraising for the exhibit was not completed that he might have to like leave in the middle of the field season to talk to a potential right. donor. Right, right, right. I spent every summer on in graduate school on a summer study abroad program that could be for a field school helping to teach undergrads how to excavate and run an excavation. And I thought, well, that I can do. And the third thing was that he was looking for someone to study the fossils from the oldest excavation layers at Alorga Sile that date back to about a million years old. Um, just analyze That's so old. Yeah, and I thought I could do, okay, yes, I didn't have any exhibit experience, but I was really interested in public engagement with science, and I thought I can do all of those things. And so we had a meeting once we were both back in the States, um, and he offered me a pre-doctoral fellowship to start with him to be on the exhibit development team. And I was really grateful that once the fundraising was all in place, including an endowment for exhibit maintenance and upkeep and changes, as well as education mm. efforts, that I got a permanent position that is funded out of that endowment. So it was sort of being in the right place at the right time um, and having <laughs> in the right skills. photocopy shop. Right. I mean, what are the chances? But also, in a sense, being willing to do something a little bit different. Like I said, that I had no experience with exhibits or education, but I really liked the idea. So there you go. Yeah. Awesome. Oh, man. The dream. Um, so <laughs> in your job where you seem to do everything at the Smithsonian <laughs> Human Origins program, what does a typical day look like for you? So do you would you say that you spend most of your time doing educational stuff or um, working on research or just sort of frolicking through the museum, which is what I would do? <laughs> it's hard. Not I mean, to I did work at the Smithsonian and I, I didn't I didn't really frolic as much as I would have liked. So, yeah, I was going to say it's hard not to frolic through the museum. I don't take advantage of that as much as I should, in a sense. So um, it's interesting because I don't have a typical day in the sense that my like my days never look routine. It, in part because a lot of the research I do is actually focused overseas. So I'm either collecting data, studying collections, you know, going out and excavating, um, watching predators eat things in other countries a lot of the time. <laughs> so when I'm when I'm doing that, that's when a lot of my concentrated research time comes in. When I'm at mm -hmm. the Smithsonian, I would say the majority of my time is spent doing education writ large. And so that could be facilitating public programs, working on social media, meeting with volunteers, um, you know, be, like having meet like larger meetings with the education team about other things that other educators are working on. So but no day looks the same. And I love that it keeps it really keeps me kind of engaged and creative, I think.
Need to gain essential business skills to level up in your career? Then UCR University Extension's Professional Certificate in Heritage Business Management is the program for you. Join the first University of California online business program designed by and for cultural heritage professionals. Enroll early and save. Visit extension.ucr.edu slash APN today. Yeah, well, of course it would. Well, um, one thing I forgot to mention. So I also I'm I'm affiliated with George Washington University. So I'm an associate research professor there. So I also mm-hmm. teach. Um, I currently have two classes on my docket. I teach a zooarchaeology class which is cross-listed as um, an undergrad and graduate class. And last year, I taught a new class that I developed for the graduate students, a seminar on science communication. So I usually... It's so, it was so fun. So I usually teach um, every, like once a year or um, maybe every third semester. But the other thing I do at GW now is that I am in charge of all the public understanding of science internships or projects that the PhD students in their CASHP program, mm-hmm. the Center for the Advanced Study of Human Paleobiology program, have to do. So mm-hmm. Every semester, I run a class that is mostly just having meetings with the students engaged in those projects and sharing information and, and giving updates and things like that. And once a week, GW has their, that Cash P program has a journal club. So I try to get over there to read articles and just keep up to date on what's happening. This is making me tired. <laughs> yeah. So I like the schedule. I, well, yeah, I, I'm really, I try to be really diligent in um, prioritizing. I make lists of lists all the time uh, <laughs> just to make sure that like something doesn't fall through the cracks. Of course it does sometimes. Um, but the other thing that I've start, you know, y- you have to learn how to say no to a lot of opportunities. And so I've tried to be really diligent in figuring out what my capacity is. And then, you know, somebody, I, I, somebody reached out to me recently about, could you be an advisor on a textbook that's being developed, a biology textbook? Um, and it was a teacher that I'd worked with in the past and I I just had to say I can't but I can maybe recommend somebody who would be really good at that. So um so saying yeah. no is important in all of that too. That's very good advice. Um, actually, Anna, do you want to take the next question since this is this, <laughs> this is, is meat your science wheelhouse? Is my, <laughs> my wheelhouse is full of meat. Um, <laughs> yes, I will take this one. So your bio page, Brianna, on the Smithsonian website mentions experimental research. So does that tie in with your research into diet? And are you doing meat science, which is the mm-hmm. title of maybe my favorite journal of all time? That- I should read the Meat Science Journal. Um, so yes, that that is the kind of experimental research that I'm doing. And so by yes. that, I mean um, mostly focusing on butchery experiments. So making mm-hmm. replicas of, you know, usually older one or very early stone tools. Um, and then varying some kind of, you know, treatment in thinking about a butchery experiment. Maybe it's how much meat is on a bone or part of a carcass before we butcher it. Maybe it's what the size of the animal is. Maybe it's what the stone tool raw material is, what kind of rock the stones are made from. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's part of my experimental research. I I sort of have, I I haven't had a chance to like flesh it out and ha ha. And and I I didn't do that one on purpose Um, and and write it all down. But I, I actually think there's an interesting matrix of 
butchery variables, and some of them have been explored through experimental research, and some of them haven't. Um, and but the other thing that I do is, as I mentioned. Um, observe predators eating things. And so that's less experimental and more more observational. But if I'm going to try to understand early human meat eating, and particularly the idea that I've um, worked on and written about, that early humans were probably scavenging meat uh, Mm -hmm. very early on, as opposed to hunting the animals that they butchered meat from, we need to know, it would be very interesting to know what kinds of carnivores that those early humans or hominins were scavenging from, because it's really different to scavenge from a big bunch of social terrestrial you know, lions that are like out in the grass eating an animal, as opposed to scavenging from a solitary, probably nocturnal leopard that is climbing up a tree to stash a kill. So if we could figure out what kinds of chewing patterns those predators leave on bones, find those chewing patterns in the fossil record on bones that have butchery marks, we might have a much better sense of maybe what kinds of predators early humans were scavenging from. Do you find that um, there is... Because I do you have people using those replica stone tools to sort of simulate butchery? Because do you find that I would imagine that the everyday human being doesn't really know a lot about how best to disarticulate or remove meat from an animal. So, like, do you think that inexperience might kind of skew your results a little bit? You know, if you do that, it's very interesting. So I I. Um, with several collaborators, wrote a paper that got published, I think, a year or two ago that um, that included a butchery experiment. And one of the things we wanted to do was see, does experience matter? Um, it was right. basically the master's project of a student from England who works with a good friend and collaborator of mine, Fire Kovarvik at Durham University. She basically sent him over to me for the summer. Um, we did butchery experiments with... Um, pigs and a collaborator, another collaborator um, who works uh, on the eastern shore of Maryland, um, Bill Schindler. And so we, one of the, the, one of the things we varied was butcher expertise. And this student, Charlie, had, he was, first of all, he was a vegetarian. He was just, so, yeah. <laughs> poor Charlie. Yes. Um, and he was so great about doing this, but he said, I'm going to do it. And he was, he was definitely our inexperienced butcher. <laughs> he did not know what he was doing. Um what I was really surprised to find is that actually the pattern of butchery marks left on the limbs of the pig weren't at least statistically significant different between Charlie and Bill, who was the incredibly experienced butcher. So I was surprised. That's not what I predicted. I would have predicted that essentially the inexperienced butcher would have left cut marks everywhere. They wouldn't have known what yeah. they were doing. They would have left a lot more marks. But that didn't end up being the case. And he seemed to actually pick things up pretty quickly, which was, and we didn't let him watch the experienced butcher, but it was interesting. And I I do wonder how much that expertise makes a difference. I'm, I'm really interested in that question. Hmm. Interesting. Well, I'll shut up and and we can move on to the next question, (laughs) but. Um, So back to your your work there at the museum and being a part of the museum and an educator there in, in the museum um, how do you contend with the whole range of views on on evolution and especially human evolution that, that museum visitors or folks that you might interact with through these public outreach capacities might have 
Yeah. So, I mean, certainly the poll data from Pew or Gallup or wherever um, in the U.S., there is a, you know, the majority of people, I would say, actually don't accept the evidence for human evolution. So we thought about this a lot as we put together the Hall of Human Origins. How can we make this a welcoming space for people of all different approaches, all different beliefs? Um, I also, uh, we, we have a travel version of that exhibit that went to public libraries across the country between 2015 and 2017. And all of those libraries, four of us from the Smithsonian team, so including Rick Potts, the director, myself, and the two chairs of our broader social impacts committee, which is basically a science and society kind of advisory group, we went to every public library and we held sort of town hall community conversations. I ran a workshop for teachers. Uh, we, uh, Rick mostly held, uh, gave a science lecture, but it was really geared towards, you know, what, what of the science of human evolution can people connect to? So in many ways, we're, we're interested in communicating the science content, but also if people can make connections, oftentimes emotional connections to the content, then there are some barriers that sometimes can be kind of relaxed. Um, so I think that making connections, in fact, I, I was doing a public program, a uh, scientist is in program last month um, in the museum, and I had a mom and her kids come up to my cart, and the mom was saying that she homeschools, and but she's really interested in science. But she also started off with, you know, you, do you actually believe all of this stuff? And so immediately encountering somebody who has that kind of question, my goal for the in interaction shifts. I'm not, not interested in necessarily communicating lots of information. I'm interested in, can I make this a positive interaction so that that person walks away thinking that they had a good conversation with a scientist and maybe is a little less scared of science. Um, okay. So, so yeah, I mean, we, I think I'm um, aware of the range of views and I think it really, the, you know, as all science communication should, you start with your audience. And so I think about mm -hmm. what's my goal with that particular person. The other thing that I do, um, so I, I have a big project funded by National Science Foundation now that's actually studying the teaching and learning of evolution in Alabama high school classrooms. Um, and so this is building huh. on a previous project where we developed some curriculum materials for AP biology that used human examples to teach about evolution. And now in the Alabama, so that was, we field tested those in 10 states across the US. And now in the Alabama classrooms, we are working with ninth and 10th grade kind of introductory general biology. We've developed two parallel units, one that includes human examples and one that doesn't. Um, and we've also developed a resource for teachers who are teaching in communities where it might not be comfortable to talk about evolution. And based on the, the first phase of the project, which was called Teaching Evolution Through Human Examples, the classroom activities that ask questions about what are scientific questions, what are non-scientific questions, all these questions are valid and interesting, but the nature of science is that we have to just rely on evidence from the natural world to answer questions about the natural world. Um, and the, the students have to classify relation, uh, uh, the students have to classify 
statements about the relationships between science and religion. And a lot of those students have only heard that they must be in conflict, science and religion. Mm. And so the idea that there can be integration, there can be separation, there can be non-conflict relationships, I think has been really eye-opening. So we're hoping to move the needle a little bit in a variety of different ways. That's really cool. Yeah. And that's a really great point that you make that um, that and that makes that makes sense that um, because I I grew up in a community where we were taught that it they are either two opposing viewpoints mm-hmm. that are mutually mm-hmm. exclusive and that if to have uh, religious faith is to issue sort of scientific mm-hmm. um, the faith as it was framed. Um, <laughs> But you make a really good point about um, there being multiple conversations happening here. And and sadly, there's also often the message of if you accept science, you must abandon your religious faith. And I think that's incredibly sad. So part of what we're trying to do with this project is can we teach evolution in a way that is sensitive to kids' beliefs? And and if we can preserve those while having them engage in the evidence, like that's fantastic. Yeah. We'll see. Um, but so far, the pilot results are pretty good. Oh, that's great. That's great to hear. Yeah. The, I mean, the great thing about religion is that what it deals with, religion and faith, I mean, faith is probably the better term to use here, but um, is it deals with unexplainable mm-hmm. questions. Right. The thing that science deals with is observable phenomena and, and explanations using evidence, like you said, from the natural world. But big questions like what happens after we die or... You know things like that that are really these sort of looming unknowns. The, That's the, the I think whys, what a lot of the whys instead of the hows. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, I, I think that's a great message to to have that these these two things that are seen as very sort of opposing and often combative mm-hmm. um, ways of understanding the world don't necessarily need to be so. They can they can complement one another. That's our hope. That's our hope. So. Yeah, we'll see. That's good stuff. <laughs> yeah. Hey, fans of archaeology, head over to arcpodnet.com slash shop and click the link to our tea Public store. You'll find some awesome designs that you can pick up on t-shirts, mugs, and more. From our Ask an Archaeologist series to the worst idea the Life and Ruins podcast ever had, slamming agriculture. I mean, seriously. Again, that's www.arcpodnet.com forward slash shop for some Archeo swag. Chris Webster here to tell you about one of our affiliates, Timeular. That's T-I-M-E-U-L-A-R. Whether you work from home or can go to the office or even to the field, Timeular is an app, and if you want it, a physical device that helps you track your time down to the minute. Have a hard time separating your work-life balance? Set a weekly goal for tracked work hours and stop when you hit that goal. It's right in the app. So support the APN and finally start accurately tracking your time by heading to arcpodnet.com forward slash timeular. That's arcpodnet.com forward slash timeular to get on track today. Hey, archaeology fans, Chris Webster here. That last ad and this one were just heard by over 4,000 fans of archaeology and history. Do you have something you'd like to sell them? From job postings to products and services, podcast advertising works. 
Through our unique hosting service, we can play your ad for a short window of time so your customers aren't hearing something that's old two years from now. We can also make your advertising budget go further because we charge by the download, not by the episode. So if you want 10,000 people to hear your ad, that's what you're going to get. Our system allows us to target countries and zip codes so you get exactly the audience you desire. If you'd like to hear more, contact our advertising manager, Madison, at advertising at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. She's super cool and waiting for your call with a media kit and some sweet, sweet metrics. So that's Madison at advertising at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Remember, podcast advertising works because you're listening to this literally right now. And thanks for not skipping. So if our listeners were to get the chance to go to the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History, which I guess we should mention is in Washington, D.C. Yeah, it's in Washington, <laughs> um, how D.C. Would you, and it's free. Yeah, it is. Oh, and it's so much fun. Um, how would you sort of send visitors on a tour to get the most out of the materials on exhibition or like what's your what are your favorite things to visit when you're when you're there if you were frolicking in the museum right where would you frolic to oh gosh um so i would say the the first approach would be like what most interests you so we've organized some of the evidence for human evolution into characteristics of being human and so those are things like we walk up Upright. We have a particular body size and shape. We make tools and eat food in a certain way, um, or you know, eat a variety of food. So one side of the exhibit kind of has these characteristics. Um, there's a whole um, part of the exhibit that is towards the mammals hall that is more about modern humans and our imprint on the planet. Um, really, one of my favorite spots is that we have a real original Neanderthal fossil on display. It's the only Neanderthal fossil that's on display in all of North America or really the Western Hemisphere because Neanderthals didn't live there. Um, nope. <laughs> <laughs> right. But we, um, so Smithsonian researchers in the 1940s and 50s did excavations at a cave called Shandadar in Iraq. And some of those mm -hmm. materials were shipped to the Smithsonian for study, including this Neanderthal called Shandadar III. So I think just going and 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 just like getting a glimpse of a real Neanderthal fossil, also um, his body or his remains tell a really interesting story about his life and maybe how he died. Um, mm -hmm. So I always say we we jokingly call that our hope diamond of human origins because it is it's a it's a precious and wonderful um, you know fossil that we can put on display. And actually opposite the Neanderthal is this curved wall that has 76 skull casts on it. And so I, yes. every once in a while, you know, somebody will come into the exhibit and say like, well, you know, I don't know if I believe all this evidence. And I'm like, you know, I stand in the middle of this and go, and this is just a fraction of all the fossils that we have. We actually have a lot of fossils given the six or seven million years of human evolutionary history. Uh, yeah. So and the other thing that I really love is that because we were not only not shying away from, but really wanting to have visitors make emotional connections with um, early humans, is we have five bronze sculptures of different species throughout the exhibit. Yeah, that they're are beautiful. Touchable that people can play on, you can take selfies with. Um, we have eight um, heads of different species that are reconstructed and 
and set at the height that that species would have stood. Like that's a you know the closest we're ever going to get to look into the eyes of our ancestors is standing and looking at one of those faces. And then mm -hmm. the one part of the exhibit that our designers kept going, "Are you sure you want to keep this? Is this really important?" <laughs> There's a photo booth essentially where you can sit, take a picture, yeah, <laughs> into one of those eight early human heads. And so there's always a line. It is the most popular place in the exhibit as per visitor studies after the exhibit opened. And so we're sort of vindicated <laughs> and went, uh-huh, it's fun. But it's also has a little bit of content during the morphing. It tells you a little bit of information about that species. And you can email the picture home to yourself. So <laughs> I would say those are, for me, those are the highlights. That's better than a flattened penny. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, does working at the uh, National Museum of Natural History, um, which, you know, is by virtue of being a museum, public facing, and um, you've talked about its mission of education and outreach, does, does working there change or impact how you think about your own, own research compared to how you might think about it if you were strictly doing research in a university setting? Because you have a really, like, a, a, a sounds like a complex, but also very, very special um, appointment where you are able to teach yeah. in a university setting, but you also teach in a, a public facing setting. And I just I would love to hear what what insights you have into sort of how. <laughs> Please help us. Yeah. How those two <laughs> how those two realms are different or how they actually aren't different at all. Yeah, it's a great question. So, I mean, I think I would probably still be interested in the same research questions that I'm interested in, even if my primary appointment, you know, if I was a tenure track university faculty. Um, but I think a lot about how do I translate the kind of research that I do to the public? Um, so not only like studying, you know, science communication and, and education, evolution education and things like that, but um, occasionally I will have conversations with, you know, random people that that like somebody asked me a question and it really sticks in my head. I was um, I had a, a really short visit to my field site in Kenya where I where I do the work with modern carnivores. And I have a long term project there studying the bone community um, and getting a sense of whether it reflects the living animal community. And I was there for a meeting over the summer and I was staying at what used to just be a research center, but now it's open to the public. Um, but it's kind of a low cost accommodation. And I was talking with somebody who was there who was helping the conservancy work on um, like technology um, that had to do with anti-poaching. And, you know, he, I'm trying, of course, now I can't remember the question that he asked me, but he asked me a question that had not really been asked or answered as far as I could tell in a research setting. And I was thinking like, that's like, I should do a project on that. Um, and so I think um, while it doesn't necessarily shape the questions that I ask, it might shape the way that I frame how I communicate about my research to the public. Yeah, yeah. that makes sense. This one's a little bit maybe maybe sillier. I don't know. Um, do you have a favorite hominin or for that matter, a favorite thing sort of more categorically <laughs> about hominins? Um, well, because I study meat eating, I think my favorite hominin would have to be Homo erectus. Um, there were just, there were so many changes with that species and mm -hmm. it's the one that we see a real ramping up of evidence for butchery of large animals. Um, also of the five bronze sculptures we have in our exhibit. Homo erectus is my favorite. So she's carrying a carcass on her shoulder 
Um, <laughs> first of all, she's carrying a carcass on her shoulder. So like, I like the fact that it's a female um, mm-hmm. reconstruction, but also, you know, all of the sculptures. Um, so all of that 3D artwork was created by John Gurchy, who's an amazing paleo artist. And yes, all of his yes, sculptures ask a question. And the questions that she is asking is like, did she hunt this animal or did she scavenge it? And and also nobody would notice this necessarily if you were just a random visitor in the exhibit, but her sculpture is looking off into the distance towards another one, Paranthropus boisei. And those two species coexisted. Mm-hmm. Um, their yes, fossils have been found in the same sites. And so like, did they interact? Um so anyway, but Homo erectus would be my favorite. Oh, I Aww. I love that that little tidbit, the yeah. interactivity of the exhibit. Like um, is within there, itself. Is there more stuff like that? Like sort of not not inside jokes, but sort of Easter eggs within the museum where where two exhibits that you might think are separate from one another actually have some tie? That's a good to one question. Another? So we, um, I mean, the, the space that any particularly permanent exhibit is given is just sort of, well, this other one closed and now you have this. Space. And so um, not usually, although we were, re- we were really happy um, with the space for the Hall of Human Origins because one side of it is adjacent to our mammals hall. So on that yeah. side, we have a nice display about humans or primates and how that connectivity works and some information about earlier, like Miocene primates. Um but there are a few things that that you wouldn't notice in our exhibit um, unless you were like either deeply nerdy about human evolution um, or unless somebody well, told you. So, mm. wow, good stuff. Well, fortunately, now our listeners are both. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, we should Amber. I'm going to come visit you, and we can do like a Facebook Live streaming tour of the the human origins hall and we can just both be big nerds you should definitely do that that'd be super fun yeah Um, and then now we're at our final two questions that we ask all of our guests and they are as fun or as serious Mm -hmm. and introspective as you want them to be um the first is there's no wrong answer there's no wrong answer uh, I mean, unless you say something about dinosaurs, in which case that is the wrong answer. <laughs> That's wrong. That's not correct. <laughs> and you will be forced to re-answer the question. <laughs> yes. Um, in your mind, um, what is the best thing about anthropology? So I, I sort of have two answers to this question. My first answer is that it's really fun. Psst, don't tell anybody because everybody's going to want to be an anthropologist. Um, no, so that I think it's um, I, it's fun. But really, my, my more serious answer is that um, anthropology and archaeology is really all about, like, collective human history and prehistory. And it is about the story of everyone on the planet and how we got to be here. And so, like, I, I think particularly in times like now where there are a lot of divisions in society, if there are ways that we can emphasize our collective, like shared unity in prehistory, I think it's can be really powerful and important. Yes. Hey, thank you. That's and, great. And it's fun. But and also fun. Um, <laughs> and fun. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, speaking of fun, here's a, here's a sort of imaginative question. So if you could have been a fly on the wall or a human for any moment or discovery or event from the past or from, you know, the development of anthropology itself, what would you choose? 
This is such a good question. You know, I, 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 when I started thinking about this, I thought, well, you know, I, I would like to know the first early human that looked at a dead animal and went, food. Uh, <laughs> I should eat that. I mean, and, and for that instance, that goes to any of the weird, like unusual things that people ate, like crabs. Yeah, we should eat. We should break those open and eat the meat inside. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that looks that looks like I want to put it in my mouth. Right. Exactly. But then I started thinking, well, but I also would have loved to be there for the first time that, you know, a hominin took a rock and broke another rock with it and thought, oh, that's a tool and I should use it to cut something. And then I thought, but really what I'm, what I, if I could go back in time, if I had a time machine, what I'd really be interested in are the things that we actually can't collect or find or observe evidence. Like we have no evidence for things like language. I would have loved to watch hominins communicate with each other, (laughs) whether they were like sitting around a campfire, going out and scavenging a carcass, making tools. Like, how do you do that without the kind of language that we have today? When did that? Mm-hmm. So I think it's more of those, uh, the questions that I often get in a public setting where I'm like, wow, that's a great question. And I don't know how we can answer that. I don't know what kind of yeah. things we can collect, you know, from the residue that remains from human behavior. I don't know how we can answer that. So it's it's those unanswerable questions that are about things like cognition, communication, um, that I think I would like to observe that sort of stuff. That would be amazing. Yeah. Yeah time machine let's do it i i you know sign me up get at me physicists (laughs) yeah oh yeah we just we just recorded an episode on language and linguistics and i mean amber did 99 percent of the work and it was so hard (laughs) (laughs) it's you know and and so many people want to know like when did language evolve and and i'm like Mm -hmm. you know it's there are like traces that maybe we can look at of like once or twice removed kind of inferences but man that's hard Yep. There, and there are so many questions like that. But fortunately, there are people like you and <laughs> institutions like the Smithsonian that are that are uh, just sort of repositories of knowledge for learning about stuff like this. And so you it's know, very there's, exciting. There's people that are creative and coming up with new techniques and new mm-hmm. questions. And so like I, you know, it, like it's not it's not the kind of thing thing where I throw up my hands and go, forget it. We're never going to know. I'm like, well, maybe we just haven't asked the question the right way yet. Maybe we just haven't, you know, who would have known a decade or a decade and a half ago that we'd have ancient DNA, holy smoke. So like, you know, there's just, maybe there are things out there that we haven't figured out yet how to actually harness and read. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So many thoughts, (laughs) (laughs) but thank you so, so much for uh, for talking with us, Brianna, do you have or, or does the uh, Human Origins program have social media and other things that you might want to plug here so our listeners can find you? That would be wonderful. So, yes, the, the Human Origins program has a Facebook page just called Smithsonian's Human Origins Program, um, and we tweet at at Human Origins. So please um, follow us, engage with us, ask questions that I have to go find the answers to. Maybe not too many of those. No, do that. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you again to Dr. Brianna Pobiner for talking with us. And thank you as always for listening. You can find us on the internet. We're on Facebook at the dirt podcast on Twitter. We are 
at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we are at The Dirt Pod. And if you want to support us, you can do that in a lot of different ways. First of all, you can leave us reviews and stars on Apple Podcasts and all other podcasting platforms. And if you want to support us monetarily, you can do so at patreon.com slash the dirt podcast at a number of attractively priced tiers. And finally, you can sponsor an episode of your very own. Just go to the our website and click on news at the top of the page and then click the link that says sponsor an episode. Easy peasy. Thanks again, everybody. We love you. Goodbye. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Chris Webster here. Thanks for listening and sharing this episode across your socials. It really helps us get the word out. If you don't know how to share from your podcast app, just look for a share icon on Apple devices. It's usually a box with a little arrow coming out of it, something like that, and share it across your socials right from in the app. If you'd like to support us a little more and get some extras in the process, then head over to arcpodnet.com members for some options. That's arcpodnet.com members to support archaeological education and outreach.